Hello, I'm Melody Asani. I'm Julie Burns Walker. Together, we welcome you to the Butterfly Forecast. I am so excited for you guys to tune into today's episode as we talk to our guest, Trisha Hersey, aka the Knapp Bishop, aka the founder of the Knapp Ministry. Trisha started the Knapp Ministry in 2016, but really she's been doing this work, it seems, her whole life. And she talks about how sleep deprivation is a racial and social justice issue and how napping is a form of resistance to white supremacy and capitalism. Being able to reclaim your time and your body from what we have socialized to just be normal under grind culture and how toxic that is. And, you know, we're spiritual beings on a physical journey. So how we access that through napping. Welcome. Hi, Tisha. (laughs) You know, Melody and I were talking about we wish this was in person. We could just invite you over for tea. Oh, my God. I will be there. I will be there so fast. Yeah. Cool. And um, I remember the first time I listened to you on Brittany Packnett's. Yes, I love her. I love her, too. And I called Julie and I was like, this woman is so in her purpose. I was like, she is like... (laughs) the definition of purpose. And I was so inspired by your journey and so incredible. And you know, it's so timely too. everything you are doing. And I think it's fascinating that you got your calling and that you share a little bit of that, you know, with everybody. I feel like you're leaving breadcrumbs for all of us. Yes. Uh, You know, follow this trail, follow this But don't you think, you guys, it's fascinating that, Trisha, you got your calling and then the pandemic hit? Yeah. this And when I think about the work I've been doing, like, this work, the NAP ministry, is a culmination of 20 years of my working as a community organizer and activist and artist and uh, Black uh, liberationist. Like, I've been, like, I feel like this is, like, every piece of the cocktail that came together of all the things I've done since I've been like 19, 20 years old, you know, doing organizing work then and then it all coming together now in this beautiful way. Because when I started this project, it really was just that a project. It was a project that was going to be like a one night only event. It was kind of me coming together to kind of share what I had learned while I was in seminary and graduate school and kind of that's where the NAP ministry experimentation began. That's where I started to experiment with what rest could do for my own body. Mm. It was about me saving my own life. I didn't think this was going to be a hashtag, you know, a global movement. I thought that later, but when I was right in the beginning nexus of it, it was really like, I have to save my life and I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. I feel on edge. I need to, my body is giving out. I need to, I'm just going to rest. So it really was a powerful idea of refusal. I was in a seminary program that was like one of the top seminaries in the world. Um, The pace was so rigorous. The expectations were so rigorous. And I literally just was like, fuck it. Like, I don't care. Like, I'm not, I'm just going to lay down and take naps all over campus. I, I, <laughs> like, I literally got to a point where I was like, I don't care. Like, I have to live. And so I would go to classes and just get the attendance credit so that I wouldn't get kicked out. But I literally went through a phase of a semester where I just literally was just sleeping all over the campus. I would come because I felt like there was something in me telling me, don't stop this work. Don't stop mm. me in the seminary. Like, 
but I really kind of started to disconnect from the classes and from what I was doing. And I just started sleeping and resting. And I was also working as um, a student worker, as an archivist. So I was working in the archive. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I love that. I loved these underground mm-hmm. caves of floors and floors of boxes and boxes of people's stuff that I was like the first person to touch, you know, coming from their homes. And mm-hmm. I was working in the African-American collection. So I was touching documents that were hundreds of years old and wow. reading stories of Black women who were like resisting and reading love letters in their journals. And you'd open what? up a yeah, I was, you open up a box and one of their earrings will fall out. You know, we would be getting boxes oh of people's gosh. work from, it would be, have been in their ba- their family's basement for 20 years. And our curator would be, get the get the boxes and get their papers and they would be shipped to us. And I would be the first person to open them, you know. Just so overwhelmed with the idea of people's things telling a story about their lives and having so sacred to be able to touch these things with gloves on and dig deep. And so I was doing that, reading slave narratives and resting, you know, trying to just maintain. And as I did that for about a, about a semester, and then finally things started to just take shape. I started to get like, I was getting like A's and B's on cl- quizzes that I didn't study for. Mm-hmm. I'll be getting papers back and be like, I wrote that? Like, what the heck? What was, I wrote that? Like, I got an A. I don't even remember saying that. It was almost like this telepathic metaphysical, spiritual work was happening within my body. And I was making these connections between the brain and the body. Now that I know more about neuroscience and what happens in the brain um, when you rest and when you sleep, it all makes sense that my brain was like downloading all this new information I was learning, you know, the pace of reading thousands of pages of books every week, you know. I just started to be able to just get better grades. And I was like, just showing up to class and be like, oh, I know that, I drink that, you know? Like, I remember that now. Like, the way academia works, it doesn't allow you the opportunity to process this new information. Mm -hmm. It's like, read the book, take the quiz, and then you have seven classes and all the teachers want the same thing. But it doesn't allow the body, these all-nighters staying up to three in the morning. You know, I had, when I was friends who were like sleeping overnight in the library, the library is open 24 hours and people were literally having breakdowns with their bodies. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to rest. And I started to get better grades in all of them. And they were like, what's the key? You know, like the key is sleep. You know, I just started to be like, the key is rest, you know, and then dreaming with this energy of these documents and these archives that I have been holding and touching by myself for hours a day, you know, I was just like, it was like Incredible. a really spiritual thing. And I think people miss the idea of the spiritual dimension of rest and what can happen mm. when you refuse and when you are subversive, when you say, I don't know what it's going to be, but it ain't going to be this. And I'm just, I refuse. And I just said, I'm going to lay down. And I don't know. I'll let the chips fall where they may. If I fell out of school, if I don't get grades, I don't care. But I just was mm. at a moment of I had to save my own life. And so that's really the energy of where this work came from, is that mm. me trying to live. It's so incredible. Because you are napping, like all of a sudden, it's part of your practice. Yeah. Did you start dreaming of the people you were archiving? Yes, Mm. absolutely. I had so Mm. many dreams. I will be reading slave narratives and thinking about my grandparents and my great-grandparents. I would just take naps and sleep with it. It was almost like 
when I take a nap, when I sleep, I felt like in some way I was reconnecting with my ancestors. I was mm. communicating with them. It became ancestor reverence. I began to really hone in on the idea of I will reclaim the dream space that was stolen from you in this dimension. I'll do that for you. This is my reparations. This is our reparations. They stole your dreams. They stole your ability to rest. I can reclaim it now. So it became real intentional for me that I have to rest now for them. And while I was resting, I would have dreams. I would see my see people walking in fields and and then they would just lay down on like on cotton and on grass. And I just would see all these outdoor movements and outdoor ideas. I would see my grandmother resting. I was communicating. I was really literally having deep ancestral communication. I believe that the things that we need for our liberation are waiting for us in our dreams. Our ancestors are like, I wish that they would just lay down because I got something to tell them, but they won't stop. They won't stop enough for me to give this word, for me to download this information to them. They keep going, they're on the grind. But if we could see resting and sleeping as part of a liberation practice that has already done work for us. Like the ancestors have already done work for us. They're waiting to spread a word. Like the name of this ministry, the tenets of the ministry all came to me in dreams. You know, my ancestors mm -hmm. gave me this information. They all told me these things. So many things, I'll wake up and write a text or write something and the meme will go up. And I was just putting memes up based on what I was waking up and hearing. And people are like, how much, how long does it take for you to write all these memes that you're putting up? I'm like, I literally don't take any time to write them. I was literally waking up and just writing them. Like my husband laughs at me. He's always like, I, he was like, if people really understood that you really have led a full global movement around <laughs> in your bed, they would not understand what has happened. I was like, I know I've cracked the code. You know, the code has been cracked. Like the more you sleep, the more you're tapped in. Like I, mm -hmm. I rest and sleep so much. And I feel like that it allows my mind to be so inventive and to be at these genius levels, like the neuroscience around what happens in the brain. If when you don't rest, you're literally not at your full maximum potential in thinking and connection. And from a spiritual sense, it's the slow death also to not rest. And so it did become a practice and I began to be very intentional. So like the first event we did was me doing a um, performance art piece where I read the names of my ancestors. I show archival footage of people working in cotton fields. I had a huge, beautiful rest altar created. I slept with cotton that was from a farm in North Carolina, from a Black-owned farm that's been in the family for four generations. And so I really embodied this idea of connecting with my ancestors, of rest being a reparations for them, of sleep being a portal and rest being a portal to invent and create and to really heal our lineage, to heal the exalt the legacy of exhaustion that we have on us and to like repair to what was done. What you're saying is so profound, but I feel like the hesitation for a lot of people is the understanding of what our reality actually is. Yeah. We don't realize that we have something other than a physical reality, yes. you know, and also that there is life after death. 
-hmm. you know, so it's like this whole connection to the ancestors Mm -hmm. is because we're still coexisting with that, those energies. And I don't think we realize how much we have access to them and how they're literally available for Mm -hmm. us at all times. They want to help us. All we have to do is be available for it or to ask for it or. What white supremacy has done is disconnected us so deeply from our natural state. It's so deeply disconnected us from what's real. You know, we have now included that people think they literally were just born to work. They're like, I was born to work. That's it. They don't see that they literally, their full divine human body, their human existence on this earth in this dimension is so for so much more. There's so much more, but they don't see that they see capitalism, you know, that mm-hmm. being the um, connection. I got to make the money. I got to work. I got to do this. And so I really illuminate and blame the systems and grind culture for what it's done to brainwash us. I name this as a brainwash. We've been socialized. We've been brainwashed from the time mm-hmm. we were born, even before we were born, to see ourselves as machines, to see our worth connected to how much we produce, to see our full energy for being born is to produce and create and make and go. And we we don't understand that our worth was just given to us from our being born. From being born, that's enough. You're enough, right? At that moment, it's already been verified. You don't have to do another thing. And so Mm. how deep the brainwashing is, how deep and violent Mm. it is. I don't think, I think people Mm. are starting to wake up to the fact of how violent this actually is for you to be resisting something that's so natural like grind culture is so violent it like totally degrades our divinity it sees us as a machine it comes from slavery it comes from that plantation labor that created capitalism so when you connect the dots it's almost like a rude awakening people a lot of people are in a place of grieving i believe right now the idea of how much we've been manipulated by the Mm -hmm. system And it's a grieving period. I want people to understand that it is going to be grief and you're going to have to give yourself grace and mercy. Like if you are caught up in grind culture today, you can't take a nap today because you're you're in it and give yourself grace. Tomorrow's another day. You can have 10 minutes to close your eyes. You can connect in ways we can reimagine. And it's what's been the dark side of this work is me seeing how deeply um, the systems have abused us to the point of, our self-esteem does not exist. People don't think they deserve anything expansive, liberating, or wet or um, good. They don't think they deserve to rest. I think it also, for me at least, one of the struggles that I've noticed is that I feel like it disconnects you from the concept of a creator. Yes. You know, where you become the creator. So yes. everything is about, so I feel like, especially in the, the U.S., like people take it on as if they're the one. I gotta like, do it. I'm yes. responsible. Everything, yes. Whereas in other cultures, like, you rely heavily on the ancestors, heavily. you know, heavily. Mm-hmm. And it's part of the culture. Uh-huh. Whereas here, it's like, it's all about the individual. And so it almost makes you feel like 
it's not real. It disconnects you from that connection. Because we're isolated. When you think you're isolated and you're disconnected from your ancestors, then also you're going to disconnect from the Creator. And you're going to disconnect from any practice that leads you back to the Creator. And that's one thing, Trisha, I'm very curious about with what you've seen and what you know. Something I observe a lot is that Those of us who come from slave heritages and who never found autonomy Uh now don't trust the divine, much less their own ancestors. Yes. They don't enter a practice because they don't trust it because if the creator allowed this to happen. Yes. why should I even practice anything that leads me back to PTSD all over again? I know. It, It is so layered, so deep from a theological perspective. Yes, it is a deep, deep um, trauma. It's a deep trauma Mm. because it's like, who do you trust? Who do you believe? If you know, how can you reckon and make sense of the fact that, you know, the creator, you know, this happened, that the transatlantic slave trade happened, that all these evils happen in our world. How do you make sense of that? How people, I understand people who just be like, I ain't no God. You know, like, even though I deeply believe in God, I understand people who don't believe in mm. God. I do. Like, mm-hmm. I worked when I was in seminary um, as a chaplain. And so I worked with a lot of people who were like, in situations where they were at their last, like they, they were about to lose a person. We're like giving them the word that the person that like, this is the end. And they, they really, from that moment on was like, I prayed, you know, I prayed every single day and nothing mm. happened to this. I mean, I, I have felt that in moments in my life when my father passed suddenly and I, my father was a pastor of a huge church in Chicago. Um, beautiful organizer, like thousands of people showed up to his funeral. He was my best friend. He was like the most good person in the world. And for him to pass like that in such a way that was so shocking and I couldn't make sense of the fact that he still transitioned. And so there were moments where I was like, hmm, okay, you know, like, where do I sit that at? And so I totally understand that. Like, that's why I think that this work is so radical and so expansive mm-hmm. and the fact that it can lead you back to your imagination. You know, it can lead you back to the power of trusting the divine that exists just in you from by being alive. You know, trusting mm-hmm. nature, trusting your intuition, trusting, hoping, you know, and I think even through all of that, I still had a place to, to hold that. I understood that, you know, he's gone from this dimension, but he's not gone. You know what I mean? So I, it gave me some peace that like, yeah, God allowed him to transition out of this world, but he's not gone. Like my dad's not gone. Like he's with me all the time. And so I was able to tap into that ancestral work and tap into the divine of knowing that I'm he's in me and I'm in him. You know, I'm part of my DNA is running through him. And so... It is such deep layers to this work, and I'm so glad that we're able to talk about it here because people are going to have to really pull back some veils, you know? Yes. (laughs) But the veils are deeply on us, and slowly and slowly and slowly, I'm watching people make sense of it all. And so I always say to myself, Mm -hmm. this work is an experimentation. I am just a curious person who wants to see how far rest can take us, how far connection can take us, how far Mm. pausing and stillness and silence 
and connecting with our divine. No matter what, I trust the divine. You know what I mean? No matter what, I trust that I'm here for a reason. You know, I, I trust that so deeply. And I understand that this system has robbed people to where they aren't there. They aren't able to trust that. All they can see is I got to eat. You know, I have to pay bills. I have to work. And what um, violence this capitalism has done to us. And I'm mad about it every day. You know, there's this tender rage of wanting us to be free, of wanting us to tap into our divine. I keep saying when we really tap in to what spirit has for us, to who we truly are collectively, it'll be over for these systems. They won't be able to exist no more. It'll be done. It'll be done once we really tap into who the hell we are, you know? (laughs) Yes. It's the skeleton key that opens up every kind of, you know, when you're talking about, I'm in Chicago. I grew up with this girl and she grew up with this phrase in her family. And here is the phrase, if you're leaning, you could be cleaning. (laughs) Yes. I've heard that when I used to work at um, McDonald's, my first job when I was. (laughs) And I was like, what? What does that do? What it does is it kind of um, permeates the poison. Yes. So that you internalize it yourself when you don't even have your boss with you and you went home, you know? So I love what you uh, talk about. I was delighted to hear that story you shared in one of your interviews about your grandma lying down. She's the muse of this work when it comes to the idea of reimagining rest, of imagination, of subversiveness. Mm -hmm. I can't uplift the idea of subversive more about the power of what that holds for people. Yeah, my grandmother you know, was a refugee from Jim Crow terrorism. She lived in Mississippi. My great-grandmother, her mother, had 18 children. I don't speak about her as much, but I have put up photos where her name was Rhody, and she had 18 children. Everyone tells me I look just like her. She was, I'm six feet tall. She's six feet tall. You know, she don't take no shit. She carried a pistol in her apron because she had 18 children. She was in deep south of Mississippi, Ku Klux Klan world and said that she just carried her pocket just in case she had to creatively solve any problems. <laughs> right? I love that. Yeah, lynchings were really horrible at the time. So she was like, you're not going to come on my land and take any of my children. And so they all survived. And then my grandmother, or the one I speak about, was one of her children. And she grew up in Mississippi and left in the um, 50s, like millions of other Black folks for the Great Migration, this huge migration of people all over. And she landed in Chicago from Mississippi because she didn't want to see another lynching. The trauma of seeing that and then the trauma of just getting on the bus with a couple of dollars in your pocket. She had two children at the time and grabbing them up and being like, I don't know what Chicago going to be, but it ain't going to be Mississippi. And hopefully there's some hope that we can make a new world, you know? And so Mm -hmm. the energy of that, the energy of someone being so subversive at a time when their back was up against the wall, when they were literally running from a lynching to say, I don't know nobody there. I'm leaving my home. This is all I know to go to a city where it snows. I'm leaving the South. I don't know. Like, I just think people pass over how, powerful that is and how we can tap into that energy now. Like when I tell people, you know, you can rest for like 10 minutes today. Oh, I could never do that. It must be nice. I could never rest. And I'm like, wow, that really makes me sad how 
the culture has us at a place where we think that we can't even imagine 10 minutes of a nap for ourselves. And my grandmother could imagine a whole new world and a whole new place, running from the KKK, running from violence, and mm. came and landed in Chicago. And how grateful I am for her for doing that. And then once she got here, she saw it wasn't much different, you know, but she was here and she was going to make a way. And she was sit on her couch in her living room, you know, so she had ended up having nine children total. I'm one of her dozens and dozens of grandchildren running in and out of her house all summer. Her door was never locked. We were in and out the house, in her kitchen, everywhere. She would sit on that couch in between going to her two jobs and she would close her eyes and just rest her eyes. And I never knew what she was doing. I thought she was sleeping. She would always just say every single time, like, I'm not asleep. You know, every shot I ain't sleep. I'm resting my eyes. I'm listening. I'm listening to what God wants to tell me. I'm listening. And I just was like, oh, okay. Grandma's eccentric, but whatever. You know, like I'm little. I was like, but now I look and see what this woman was doing. Like to be a woman of in poverty, of her um, raising all these children. But she grew gardens next to her house. She just took over land. I was like, do you know the people's land? is just like, I don't know. They don't own the land. She just took over acres of land and grew gardens in Chicago. Like, she never got a permit. She never asked nobody. It wasn't. She just was this person who just, I'm going to make a way out of no way. I'm going to do what I have to do. And so to watch her with her eyes closed, suffering from PTSD heavily, and to still hold court in her own living room and sit with her eyes closed when all of culture was trying to crush her around her, everything, you know, everything is in culture trying to crush a black poor woman for her to do that every single day for 30 minutes to an hour. Revolutionary. I'm, I'm so blown by it. I'm so shocked by it. So whenever I, whenever I think about her and think about her reclaiming her time and her life and seeing that she was listening mm. and to think what was she getting in those moments? You know, mm. what was the universe telling her? What was God telling her? What were these downloads that she was receiving that let her be able to live such a beautiful love life and raise all these beautiful, powerful children grandchildren you know I'm so blessed that she did that I'm so in honor of her doing that because if she wouldn't have done that I, maybe I wouldn't be here you know I, she may have got caught up in the racial trauma of, of Mississippi but for her to take that leap to build this spaceship out of uncertainty that's what I feel like that she did she they just built a spaceship I love that yes. I'm just gonna I don't yes. know I'm just gonna make a temporary space of joy and freedom I'm gonna freedom make I'm gonna make freedom for myself you know I'm going to be subversive and make a way and make freedom right now. I don't have to wait for anyone to tell me that I can or can't. Mm. Mm. I love also using the spiritual dimension as our reality. Yeah. And reality isn't what we've been stuck with or right. what we've inherited or the post-traumatic slave syndrome is not, that's not the future. No. That's the legacy of the past, but it's not the future. And I love what you exemplify like if people just nap then they can open the door of what healing looks like yes also mm. napping is a practice because mm. i know that mm. for the longest time i've been so tired that mm. even when i sleep i don't dream mm. I'm, too, I'm too tired yes. to even dream yeah. so mm. i don't want to i'm like please just let me i just want to be out cold yes. you know what i'm saying because yes. yeah. there's different kinds of <laughs> oh yeah different kinds sleep. of rest and sleep and so 
you have to practice at it to even be available for it when you're napping. It's like layers to napping. So I'm not even in the place right now where I can even access that information because mm. I'm too tired. You're preparing and you're you're almost going through the detox and deprogramming process. You yes. know, it's a very slow, mo- I say it's a meticulous love practice. It's a practice that is mm. a, about love and grace and it's meticulous. It's a praxis that you have to practice and this has to be a part of your day. This has to be at the forefront of your mind. You have to make choices. No one's going to give us rest in this culture. Once you believe that and know that, this culture will love for you to work 100 hours a, a day if there were 100 hours in a day yes. you know every day and then drop dead and then they'll put another person in there to work so it's like when you really understand that this culture does not want us to rest it's not going to give us rest you begin to reimagine what it means to be subversive to be flexible to be inventive to um imagine i'm really inspired by afrofuturism and it really grounds a lot mm. of this work this idea of the future is now, that my people are free right now, that we can imagine we have everything that we need, that another world is possible, that right now is the moment, that we don't have to wait. I'm not waiting or asking nobody if it's okay for me to rest or if it's okay for me to get my freedom, my liberation. My grandmother didn't go and ask the state of Mississippi, can I leave? Oh no, she wrangled together $20 and she was out of there. She, no one gave her the right to close her eyes and rest. Her job wanted her that, but she found space. And so I want people to tap into that subversive resistance, this idea of making freedom, of freedom making. We can do this. We can make our own way. We don't have to wait. The future is now and another world is possible. And if you can't imagine yourself able to rest, just imagine it. Like you said, Melody, you're not there right now, but you're imagining it and you're dreaming it up that at, at some point you're going to get to the point of where it's a practice for you, where their dreaming has continued. But just the spark of imagining it, of wanting it, of conjuring it in your mind, of of having a future goal set in mind, of seeing it as a, a way for you is the beginning. And I think people need to see that this is imagination work, that this mm-hmm. type of work is spiritual work, this social justice work, this resistance work, is imagination work. It's imagining something that has never existed. It's imagining a well-rested world, a world that's not under the grips of grind culture, a world that allows people to have leisure, a world that sees us as divine human beings and not as machines, you know, this machine-level pace of working. We have to get back to who we are, to our humanness. And so people ask me all the time, what is this work about? This work is really about uplifting the idea of us being human. Mm. I think that when people begin to see it as a practice, that's my long-term goal with this work. It's not this trend to me. It's ancient work. It's ancestral work. It's work that is going to be from now until the present, until the future, and until our next dimension when we leave here. You know, I think that I had a medium reading um, probably a couple months ago, and the woman has been doing medium readings for probably 20 years. And she was like, I've done these a lot. She was like, so many, I was in tears. I was like, oh my gosh, why were you crying like that? Is She was like, I never cry like this when I do this. I'm like, why? She was like, it was so many people showing up for you that I had, it was so mm. crowded in the room that they were 
clamoring and hollering and screaming like, that's my daughter. That's her. That's Trisha. Like, I love her. Yes. She's helping us to rest in this dimension. You know, she said, tell her that the work she's doing, we're resting now. We're laying down now. And I just like think about I want to cry because it's like the work we're doing, I'm doing now in this dimension is affecting these people affecting them, that they're in their realm actually getting some sense of care and some sense of rest and some sense of reparations, that they're feeling this movement, this global idea that I will rest for you. You know, we'll be reconnected. We'll be um, repaired in our dreams, that this dream space can allow me to repair and reconnect with them, that they're feeling the energy of that. So I think the global shift toward us resting is really resting and healing ourselves, but it's also healing um, the past and it's healing the future. It's really a shift that I believe is the foundation for building a new world that's rooted in liberation, that's rooted in care, that's rooted in actually seeing each other, you know, like this deep, deep um, scene, this deep, deep intimacy. And I believe rest is this vintage intimacy. It's this intimate moment for us to connect with ourselves and with our ancestors. But how powerful to know that she had to stop the reading so many times because all my ancestors just couldn't wait to talk and couldn't wait to like be like, we see her, tell her we know and that we're resting now and keep going. So yeah, it's a powerful spiritual dimension, a spiritual place that I when people can really breathe it in and sit with it for a moment, I believe that it'll um, really crack open so many um, traumas. I love that. You know, Trisha, I had really long near-death experiences in my origin. And uh, what I was shown was not myself, not mm. my life, not my purpose, yeah. but what happened to humanity mm. and our ancestral lineage. And I saw the strands of all of our peoples from current time, to the past, to even before formations of land that we recognize today and yeah. before that, with exactly the same thing that led you to your ministry. Mm. It's just one individual. You've transformed humanity. And I love how your ancestors have clearly <laughs> shown up to answer you, not just through your dreams, your dreams, a medium, somebody yeah. else, yeah. somebody else. I, even how I heard about you, uh, Melody mentioned you to me, and she's like, we have got to have her on for a conversation. <laughs> and she's like, you've got to read up on her. So I did, and I was like, oh, wow, but why would she want to talk to us? <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because in our and we did this podcast about truthfulness, mm. and Julie was breaking down how whatever your definition of reality is mm. uh, determines what you think the truth is. Okay. I was blown away by this concept. I realized that I'm so inspired by people that carry beliefs mm. that I'm not aware of or that like open my mind up. And I feel like you're the carrier of this mm. belief system mm. that you're sharing, you know, and it's, this is your truth, but it's not just your truth. It's mm. tied to a bigger truth. It's connected to the truth. Mm. When you carry yes. the yes. truth into mm -hmm. every room you go into, every space, when you yes. are the carrier of that truth and you do it in your language, 
it exposes every single other person in the room to that truth. And the first time I heard you, that recognition of truth was so inspiring to me because it's like you already knew it because it's the truth, but you had never heard it in this way. Yeah, that's Mm. weird. Mm -hmm. I'm so into like the intuitive and into spirituality and into these connections and then telepathic communication and the metaphysical. Like this really is metaphysical work to me. And so when I began to start the net ministry, I knew that I would have to frame it in a way that I could be subversive. (laughs) You know, I can bring people on, you know. And so as a performance artist and theater maker, I've been doing that for 20 years. I'm always creating these personas. And so this persona of the Nat Bishop, this woman who is guiding and who almost like when I first started, like actually not doing, I was always doing the work um, when I was in seminary, I just began to experiment in person with people. You know, I was just doing these nap events and collective napping things that were very DIY. I was borrowing blankets and pillows from my mother and from people and washing them and then laying them out and curating these spaces and having people come in the land down. It'd be three people, two people, 40 people. But it was like this collective experience that I felt like we we can't do this by ourselves. I think it's going to be stronger and more powerful if we collectively hold space for each other to rest together and when was the last time people actually slept and rested in the same room like strangers you know where we're like maybe when you were in kindergarten you had nap time <laughs> nap time you know, preschool, my son <laughs> loved preschool nap time you bring your blanket but I'm like there has to be a moment because I believe that when we rest that there is a portal that is opening and to be able to hold space in a spiritual way every single time I've done these events someone is bawling every single time I've done mm. hundreds of them someone I wake them up from this sleep state that we go into and I wake them up in this beautiful way with music and sound and and we turn up the lights a little and we just hold space for this nap talk and every single time people are telling me their dreams and people are dreaming the same dream. Like mm-hmm. I was at a place in Chicago, Root Work Gallery, and we did something downstairs in a basement of the gallery with 50 people all sleeping together in this, on the floor in this little art gallery. And people are waking up from the dream crying. And I'm like, well, tell me your dream. And she's like telling me the dream. And then there's a woman who's three rows behind her who's crying. I'm like, what's up with you? She's like, well, what about you? She's like, well, actually, that's the same exact dream. I was like, well, you stop seeing your dream and you pick up. And she picked up and it was the exact same dream. And so there is some some synergy in this metaphysical world that's happening when we open these spiritual portals for rest. Mm. And so when I began the work, I thought to myself, this is going to be secular. This is a global movement where it's going to come from the lens of me being a seminary. So this idea of a ministry, this idea of a bishop, this idea of a, a nap temple, like I wanted to frame it in a way where I can be subversive. So people can be like, yeah, you know, I'm coming to just lay down. There's a nap pillow and a blanket. It's soft. I love this. I'm sleepy. But then underneath it, there's Afrofuturism, there's semantics, there's like metaphysical work, there's Black liberation theology, there's womanism, there's um, all of these subversive things happening under the scenes that we need to make a movement really be collective. And so the more that I speak about this, the more that I experiment with these ideas, I want people to really know that when you talk about this truth, that This is a global movement for all people. But Mm -hmm. the fact that it's coming from a Black liberation lens, I think is really important. People need to understand that 
until black folk are free, nobody is free. And black liberation is the bomb for all of humanity. You know what I mean? And so when yes. we get free, you get free. You know, yes. you know, this interconnectedness that's so deep. Like you have um space in this as well. White supremacy and capitalism is killing the entire planet and everybody on it. And yes. the patriarchy. And the patriarchy, yes, absolutely. Yes. It's killing every... I don't care if you are a billionaire. You, There's a spiritual death that's happening to you. You know, mm-hmm. there's a physical death mm-hmm. happening to the workers who are laboring, you know, at these places for hours with no health care. I mean, all the, the pollution, the climate change, everything that's happening to the planet and those on it is happening to all of us. And so this idea of the truth, that, that sometimes I see so many people who aren't Black come to the work and be like, I know this work isn't for me. And I'm just like, more of the brainwashing. Why wouldn't work that's from Black lens be for you? You know, why wouldn't Black liberation and dismantling capitalism and grind and white supremacy be for you? Like this mm-hmm. idea that I'm white, so white supremacy doesn't affect me, or I'm the, I'm rich, so capitalism <laughs> doesn't affect me. Like people literally think that because of the brainwashing of our culture, this binary thinking, this individual. Or I'm Black and I'm not a white supremacist. Exactly, because wh- Black people can be agents of white supremacy trained under the same cult curriculum. Exactly. We're all trained in the same curriculum. You know what I mean? You're growing up under the same stuff. You're learning about capitalism from an early age. You're all We're all manifested it in this system and we're all mm. coming from it from different lenses. And so me freeing myself from the grips of capitalism has freed so many other people. And so mm-hmm. that's the beauty of womanism is that we know that the care and concern and, um, you know, repair for of a black woman's life in the, of a woman's life is going to be able to bring together all of what is happening wrong in humanity. It's going to be able to like make space for all of humanity. And that's the beautiful interconnected global movement of liberation. And so this idea of the truth, I really love that you brought that Mm. up, Melody, because it helps to deepen the idea of this work. This work is multi-layered. It has so many legs to it. And so I want people to take their time and to get under it and inside of it and beneath it and around it and to really experiment and find their way around using rest as a tool to disrupt and push back and dismantle the systems that are trying to kill us all. I also Mm -hmm. feel like it's so empowering because I believe that what's happening when we when we dream or when we sleep is our soul is traveling. Like uh-huh. I, that's what uh-huh. I really believe. Me too. Mm-hmm. And that's just energy, right? Mm-hmm. You can send your energy anywhere. Anywhere. And so it's so empowering to me. Like for example, there was somebody that I needed to have a conversation with that was going to be a difficult conversation, but I and I knew they weren't available for the conversation. Okay. And she was like, "Well, why don't you have the conversation with them in, without actually physically having the conversation?" Yes. Yeah. So I, I just kind of went into meditation and I sent my soul and I went like I invited them their soul mm-hmm. and I had that conversation and by the end of it. I felt like I had really had the conversation yes. and, and I know they knew I had the it conversation. Was work and movement happening in them. Yes. There was still, oh, uh-huh. And so I think what you're really a big part of what you're really touching on is our spiritual reality. 
Mm. Whether you want to call it spiritual or if you don't want to believe in God, like I don't think anybody should get caught up in the words. The fact is, Mm. is that we have energy. That's just science, right? And Uh so you have, it's an intelligent energy that you can control and that you have agency yes, over. Yes. And so what's so inspiring about what you're doing is is you're like both these things. You're just as much energy as you are physical. And yes. so make sure put the physical aside. Like there's this prayer that I love that says, um, Oh, man of two visions, close one eye and open the other. Uh-huh. Cl- close one to the world and all that is therein yes. and open the other to the hallowed beauty of the beloved. Yeah. And I love that because we do have different types of vision. Absolutely. You know, it's like mm. there's these eyes and then there's in your dreams, you know, where you, mm-hmm. you eat, you smell, you dance, you move, you have a whole Everything. other landscape. Yes, yes. I'm so, I'm so into this because I never get to talk about this deeply. People, I've done so many podcasts and interviews, and I'd be really wanting to go into the metaphysical yes. with the people. I've been wanting go to talk there. about. I've been to talk about <laughs> my practice in telepathic communication, how I can tel- communicate with people, like how rest is that portal. Like when I say it's a portal, I mean it is a portal. Mm. It is a third mm. space. Mm. It is a mm. another world. It is a um, dimension that is waiting for us to get go there, you know. Mm. But grind culture doesn't want you going there because when mm-hmm. you go there. You're free. You're free. You're not connected to the. They don't want you to be free. They don't want you free. They don't want you getting Mm -hmm. these downloads from your answers that's going to actually free you. And Mm -hmm. when you're going to wake up and be like, well, hell no, I'm not on that. You know, like you're going to get this new awakening. They want you to continue on in this zombie, numb, disconnected, exhausted state. When you think about what exhaustion really is on the body from a somatic way, nothing generative is happening when you're exhausted. But we continue on burning the midnight oil. We'll sleep when we're dead. (laughs) You know, we're just up all night being proud that we're so busy, being proud that we only slept two hours and I was Mm. up like people this pride and boldness that we have in being busy and being exhausted and being grinded out. And it's not giving what you think is giving, you know, you it's not like embodied. It's not generative. It's not allowing you to really tap in. And so what I see is a lot of people who are disconnected from their bodies because of that, they're disconnected from each other. They're disconnected from community. They're disconnected from, from spirit there. There's a huge disconnection from what's really going on. And so when you can tap into that connection and plug in, I keep saying tap in, y'all, there's more. Mm-hmm. And I believe rest is the vehicle to tap us in, to get us there. Mm-hmm. I believe the greatest oppression is when we get to the point where we can't imagine a new way. When we are at the point where we're like, I can't even see that. Like, it will be nice to sleep 30 minutes, but when our imagination has been robbed by these systems, that's when we're dead. And so I want mm-hmm. people to retap into the idea of imagining a new world, um, of Afrofuturism, of tapping into portals, of going into this connection that we know as indigenous people that, you know, we can go outside and, and connect with a tree. We can, you know, telepathically communicate with our ancestors in our dreams. We can do so much that is outside of this world that we can figure things out that we can't figure out when we're awake in our dreams, in our sleep. Like so many things I figured out 
that I just couldn't even think about it. But I would just, I'm just going to take a nap. You know, let me just go lay on it. Mm. Let me sleep on it. This idea of let me sleep on it. Like what that really means when you wake up and you're like, everything is fine. Like I can figure this mm. out. I know the answer to that problem I had. Like when people can really see that that's what rest is and not what they've been lied to. They've been told that it's a luxury, that it's frivolous, that it's lazy, that it's a waste of time, that you're not doing anything when you're resting, that you could be doing something. I'm always just like, you are doing something. Like this idea that rest isn't generative, that sleeping and going Mm. into a portal and connecting is not doing something. Like it's just this reframe that has to happen. Mm. I feel like the Nat Bishop, all she does is just reframe. And you, Trisha, you are the icon that gives people memory. So being who you are, your ancestry, the ministry, bringing napping to this layer, that every time you take a step in this path, just who and what you are, you will have to do less and less and people will attune more and more being in your presence because you've become this. You know, I suspect you always were this. So even when you were sharing the story and how you were sort of thinking, should I be quiet around my grandma? Should I not? Is she sleeping? Well, the other kids weren't. They were just jumping, bouncing, whatever. You're going, wait, someone is resting. What does this mean? And something in your spirit is going, pay attention, little Trisha. This is your future. So I love how you're an icon. And, you know, you make me think of this other quote akin to the prayer melody shared where Baha'u'llah said that Black people are the pupil of the eye of humanity. Mm. And the pupil of the eye is Black. And I feel like we haven't had your voice and the leadership of Black people who have napped, so are disengaged from history by and large. White supremacy is one evil chapter. We have many before that became popular. Yeah. (laughs) We need to, like, hear the voice from only those that people would trust, and that has to be Black people, and it has to also be the feminine to stop waiting for someone to give them directions. Honey, this is what you need to do, and then you should do this. Wait a minute. When did we stop listening to the creator and the ancestors in our own ears? Yes, listening. Yeah, that's so... (laughs) When I feel my grandmother saying, I'm listening. Now I'm thinking about her. What was she hearing? Mm. I wish I was older when I could have sat down and really been like, talk to me about the downloads. But I'm just imagining what was this woman hearing to be able to live such a full life, raise all her children are still alive to this day. All her, you know, like to just be this matriarch of this beautiful connected family and to just know that, um, that she had the power to do that when, when she was in a place that didn't tell her she had any power, you know, like Mm -hmm. the Zen moment of her being able to just close her eyes and not be bothered by what Mm -hmm. we were doing because she was in like a zone. She was time. She was so traveling, you know, she was traveling. She was in another daydream dimension, listening and getting inspiration and getting power to be able to go on. You know, those moments probably allow her to be able to embody her life in a way that I'm still talking about, you know, and that she was able to um, be so loving and powerful. I just give so much honor and reverence to her as my ancestor for her. You know, I have a picture of her up all the time. I'm always looking at her. I'm always resting my own eyes. I teach this resting your eyes Mm. technique 
mm. at a lot, all of our collective mapping experiences and our virtual experience. I teach this technique of us being able to subversively find rest wherever. Like people don't even know what that means. And it has to be like a, a full de-unraveling, a full deprogramming, a step-by-step, you know, tool for you to be able to connect and get back to who you are. And so I've had people who was like, when I first heard of that ministry, I was laughing. I thought that sounded crazy. Two years later, they're like, I get it now. I took a sabbatical from work. I'm resting. I'm healthier. Like I'm able to see things. I feel, you know, and so it's, I feel like it's this slow moving and I give thanks for that, that it is slow moving. I don't want it to be this fast, quick trend that just sweeps and then people are gone. Like I'm really holding firm on it. This is a lifelong unraveling. This is um not a game for me. This is something I really, you know, believe could change people's lives and shift the entire culture around um, towards liberation. Mm. Trisha, you started this in 2016, 2016. was your first event. Yeah, 2016 is when I really was like, this is an organization, this is the NAP ministry. But I would say that I started experimenting with the ideas is when I started seminary in 2013. Yeah. So I was in seminary for three years. I graduated after, you know, 2016. Mm. That's when I kind of just was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to get a job? And I just began to experiment with this art project, reading, you know, studying cultural trauma on campus, sleeping, you know, really looking at I was studying Black liberation theology and womanism, Mm -hmm. and cultural trauma was like one of my main research interests in school. And so I was looking at Jim Crow terrorism and somatics. I was taking a lot of somatics classes, what what happens when we hold trauma in the body and interviewing Mm -hmm. Jim Crow survivors, thinking about my grandmother, thinking about what was really happening to enslaved people when they were in um, slavery, like how many hours they were working, what was happening to their body. And so really just experimenting with my own body. And then 2016, where I was like, well, let me, let me do this one event and see what's up. And then after that, they were like, when's the next? I'm like, the next one? What are y'all talking? Like people were leaving, like, when is the next one? I'm like, I will see what the creator offers. If I can get the space, I can get the money. And as soon as I said that, people were just offering me things like space, help. Like it just really became like this full mm. on movement that I knew it was anointed because um, I've never once had to take a grant. I've never taken a loan. I've never rented a space. I've never, people literally are like, come and just do it here. Like use this space, use this space. Like it's just been like this offering that has just opened doors. My answer has just been like, you're going to do this is your call and you're going to take it on. We're going to open doors for you. And so even from an entrepreneurial standpoint, what I've been able to do with this ministry um, by myself, you know, I don't have staff. I have one personal assistant I just hired. She's part time. But really, it's just me. Like my husband said, in a bonnet, in a momo, like <laughs> doing work from the bed and just slowly going out step by step. I was happy when I just had two events, when it was only 50 people following the page. I was ecstatic. I was like, 50 people are following the Nat Ministry on IG. They're like vibing with this. And I was so excited. Me and my son, he's he was like, we should throw a party, mommy. You got 50 people. I was like, no, that's so cool. He was like, that's so cool. And now to look at how many people are following, like, I really was just thinking this was just like a one-on-one. I'm honored that even one person has shifted in some way that they feel like rest is something that's valuable to them and that they've actually begin to rest. Like, I really do feel that it gives me so much joy. I'm so grateful. Well, I mean, to think Mm -hmm. that it shifted you, you know, like you shifted. And then because of your shift, look how many others 
have shifted because of your shift. That's the beautiful thing. Recently, I've noticed that I'm super moved by or inspired by people that take something and transform it into something beautiful. Mm. But I've, I've noticed that there's some people that don't transform it. They just want to be known for it. Mm. Like they, they almost like use their pain or their trauma and they okay. want you to look at it or they use it as a okay. badge. Like I've been through something too. Yeah. But it's it's like more self-focused. Yeah. Whereas I've noticed that people that have like gone through it and then they transform it, then everybody else, regardless of whether you've gone through it or not, you find yourself in that pain and you're moved by it too. Yeah, this idea of what is transformation, like how do you transform? How do you remix? How do you take something and totally shifted to another place and then sometimes you are is it more like you're thinking people can get stuck in the zone of just like Mm. sitting with the pain and the trauma and just like holding it up as like a badge in a way yeah like they glorify the pain and the trauma but they haven't actually transformed it it's so process oriented isn't it like we none of us have learned about first of all that we're here to evolve And two, that we have a lot of work to do from the day you're born. Transformation is the order of the day. Yeah. And so sometimes I think people get stuck in the early stages of recognition, like, ow, I'm in pain and this is why and this is the people responsible for it and I can't budge and this is my story instead of this being a chapter in the story, you know? Like, when have we ever talked about how to since we haven't been there? You know, um, you guys, in my town, I'm actually, we're in Evanston. Evanston is the first city in the U.S. to financially do reparations from the slavery. Specifically, it started out doing reparations because of slavery and how it deprived people of housing in this area. So the, a sum of money was arrived at and trickle down. People have been given money. But, you know, I've heard a lot of criticism more than I've heard this awareness, which I'm at. And I'm at, wait, it has begun. Nobody's done this before and we got to get on this. So let's attract as many people from Trisha, from the point of view of what you're bringing in, from napping. Let's bring people and resources in like, wait a minute, that's my pain too. That's my history, too. I want to be on that. I don't want to be stuck in this. So whatever it has to transform into, maybe it'll move away from housing to money. But wouldn't it be more exciting if we understood its process so we could get away from just, Melody, what you're talking about? We just get stuck. And it creates polarization and white supremacy, too. Then people are like, well, what? I've tried to do this. We don't need to know that. We just need to be on the same train. Yeah, I've just been watching what's been happening. I think I've been forever changed by the pandemic and watching in real time. And also the same. George Floyd uprisings, watching in real time, like w- that people literally do not understand what the idea of community care means. Like It's just like total mm. individualism. That ministry is focused on community care. We don't mm. use the word self-care. People are like, it's a self-care thing. So like, There's enough self-care. Like self-care has been co-opted by the white wellness industry for centuries. And I'm not on that. I'm more on the idea of this interconnected 
deep, radical community care that looks at building systems of care today. You know, Mm. like we're not waiting. Mm. We can't wait for what the government may do. Like it has to be this active participation in like caring and, and really actually knowing that if the person next to you is not well, you're not well either. You know what I mean? Like that deep knowing that you're sick, I'm sick. So there's this interconnectedness that we have gotten away from. And just to watch it, I've been so changed by it. I've been living here in Georgia and watching people being like, no mask. People are like out. Just to watch the sickness of this culture, I've always known it was very sick, you know, but to see it like with an example in real time that's so historic that you've never seen before has really changed me. And mm-hmm. and what it's taught me is that we're in deeper shit than I thought. <laughs> Like literally Mm. like, wow, even when we Mm. have a moment to slow down, people literally could not do it. Like my brother was working Mm. at a factory that closed down for a week. I was on the phone with him counseling him and he was just like, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm like, dude, they're paying you for a week to be off. He was like, I got to find something to do. I got to do something. I was like, sit down, like stare out the window, like take a nap. You know, he was just like, I got it. It's like this internalization of even when there's a moment to rest, we can't do it. So many people think that grind culture is this pie in the sky monster that's here, but it's actually you. Like we are grind mm. culture. We are the behaviors, the way mm. we email, the way we don't give people time to respond. We're always on texting, the way we're always on our phones, the way we don't give any grace, you know, for anything mm. like the fast paceness of our lives. People try to rush me. Like people are in my email and I'm the nap bitch and they're like rushing me every day. And I'm like, wow, y'all really are missing the whole paradigm of this. Yeah. And even in community building, yeah. you, people are rushing you and you're building yeah. community. Literally. They're like, I sent you an email yesterday and it's literally not even 24 hours. I can't, did you get the email? I'm like, wow. Like you literally sent it like three hours ago. Like, can I sit and read it? Like, yeah. I have a friend, Kimberly, who did something that I thought was revolutionary. Like three years ago, I remember I emailed her and she had an automatic reply on her email. And in the email, she said, like, she's like, I don't check emails after 6 p.m. and before 10 a.m. And I only answer them in this two-hour period And so it was like super clear. So if you emailed her, you knew she wasn't going to get back to you until the next day. And she only wrote you back if she got to it within those two hours. Exactly. And I love that so much Mm. because I remember even when I got a pager when I was in high school and I was like, I'm no longer just like a free agent in the world, you know, Mm. or like even having a cell phone. I was like, oh, my God, my mom could call me anytime now. Like I'm just available (laughs) all the time. Whereas before people would know you, they couldn't call you unless you were home. And now it's like somebody texts you and you don't get back within an hour and they're like, What's wrong? Or she hates me. Are you mad at me? It's like, what? Mm, I miss snail mail. Me too. I mean, I always send, I'll send you a letter. I love writing letters. Thank you. I'll write you back. I mail all the time. I love it. It's my favorite thing to do. It's like one of my little love practices. I send 20 letters probably a month to friends all over. We've been writing each other back and forth for years. Yeah, I'm bi-stationary. I'm in love with it. Oh. I love it. It's just like, wait to hear from me. You know, have a little bit of 
longing, you know, like I'm going to write, I'm, I'm here, I'm still here, like telepathically communicate with me a little, like just because I'm not texting you doesn't mean I'm not, you're not in my energy or I'm not in your thoughts, you know mm. what I mean? Like that's what I've been trying to like let people know, like you can still get work done, you can still do your calling, do your passion and not, and be at a pace that's very leisurely. Like yes. I love to make space mm. to say no because it allows me to have the opportunity to know what I really want. Like that yes moment, like the space to just have leisure. I want to have my calendar a little empty. You know, I want space in there to kind of have a mystery to life. Like what could pop up? Who could come by? What could happen? You know, that's not scheduled. I love that mystery and guessing and and not knowing. Mm. And And divine time. Yeah, Mm. a slow time, like. To be guided to something rather than to just plan it all the time. Mm. I do that with my prayers sometimes. So like in the morning when I wake up, one of my prayers is like, please show me how I can serve you today. And I always Mm. know that that in some way service to my creator is really service to me. Mm. It always shows up in a way that's so fulfilling to me. So I love asking those questions in my practice or like requesting those kinds of requests because then during the day, I'm like kind of waiting for the magic to happen. And I'm like, and then I'll, I'll call Julie and I'll be like, so I met this person today and, you know, or I, I, I heard this guy at the coffee shop and it's yeah. like my, it's like where I find my little magic moments, I but I put requests in regularly. I'm yes, like, please like show me, show yes, me my path me. today. Yes. Like guide me to that. Part of that giving that, that surrendering when I was just like, I, I'm just let the chips fall where they may. I just told God, I said, you got me in seminary. You, you the one, I didn't know why I was even in seminary. It was like a <laughs> calling that you wanted me to go. So I went and followed. Now that I'm here and I'm like struggling, I was like, I know nothing. Guide my step. I'm just a mm. servant. Like, let me know, you know? And so I think when the NAP ministry came into my understanding, I was like, I'll follow this, you know? But I, I really did fight it in the beginning. I was still trying to find jobs, still applying for work. And my husband was like, he's like, you're going to keep applying for these jobs and keep going. I would be going into the jobs, right? When I got to seminary, having interviews and the interviews went well. Like I literally was doing like chaplaincy spiritual direction sessions with the people. They were walking me to the car in tears sometimes because I would be talking to them about because their daughter just passed or they were like going through something hard. And I would literally be giving them spiritual direction mm. at the interviews and they would call and be like, we gave a job to someone else. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> I thought we vibed and mm. but I just kept doing that over and over. I literally went on like 10 interviews. My husband like, you're going to keep going and that's what you want to do. That's fine. But mm. the work is this napping. He was like, just do that. You know, mm. I'm like, I just do that when oh. I gotta pay oh, bills. I like, your husband. Yeah. He was that. Just, and I remember it was like hmm, $25 in my account. And I was just like, what are you talking about? Like, I got like bills to pay. Like, this is not how he was like, I'm trying to tell you, like, just do it. Just focus on mm. it. Even just focus on it for like a year. Go in hard with it. And I did. And now it's what, six years later and I'm saying no to, you know, so much work because I just can't, I don't have, the, I'm writing two books right now. I, I'm doing so many beautiful things, so much art and mm. I'm so taken care of. My family is taken care of and 
there's the blessings and abundance are just raining down on me because I'm in my purpose. I'm in my calling. I'm not fighting against the other way. And how grateful I am that God didn't allow me to get any of those jobs that I actually was able to just be in service to the people I was interviewing with. Like there's something to that. And so when you mm. follow the calling, no matter how hard it looks, mm. just go. I'm just going to build a spaceship and I don't know. I'm going to float in the unknowing of that and just hope and wish and know that the creator will make space for me. And so I tell that to people a lot. They're like, how can I rest and I have to work? I'm like, you can do both. You know, it's not an either or. The system has mm. us so brainwashed. We think either I work, you know, at exhaustion level or I'm homeless and starved. And that is a reality for many people who are in deep poverty. Like this country does not have any type of space to help people in those ways. So I understand that trauma of not having, of being homeless, of Mm. not having food, of being like, if I don't work, the whole bottom of my life is going to fall apart. You know, not being Mm. able to have lights on, being on food stamps, all those things have been my reality in my life. And so I get it. But at a certain point, I got to this idea of let the chips fall where they may. And there's this radical trusting of, I just radically trust that the universe and I trust myself and I trust that there will be space made for me. And I'll just take it, not um day by day, because day by day may feel like too much. I took it minute by minute. I took it like, okay, minute by minute. I know I slept today and it felt good. So what's the next thing I can get into? I'll take another nap and see what that opens up to me. And I literally was taking naps and waking up at a certain point in my inbox was just full of requests for work and full of me to come lecture mm-hmm. and just I've never once like reached out to someone to ask to do anything for the nap ministry everything has come to me and so you can craft your life that you want like it may look like it's not possible but mm-hmm. it is so possible and the systems don't want you to know that you are powerful like as a collective we're so powerful as individuals there's so much we can tap into and so when people can feel the energy of that and feel the energy of who they really are, that it will really like open doors. Absolutely. What a beautiful model. You know, it's such a good, um, a good time to bring in. Uh, we always ask our guest this question. <laughs> what did you think in your lifetime would have happened by now? Whether it's in the world or or with you, but what did you think would have happened by now, but it hasn't happened? That's such a good question. It is. It's so because there's so <laughs> much to that. I really, I'm really perplexed so much every day. Like my brain can't comprehend um, racism. Like I just can't comprehend that a person could just see a person's skin color and be like they're less than, they're nothing. Like, I really thought by now that we would have made some type of movement, a little bit of movement towards, like, understanding racism and that people would be a little bit more past that. You know, I'm really surprised by it. Like, when I hear about, like, what's really kicking up with all of the um, Karens, the women online who are like, when I see those and I see that, it's just like, I'm so surprised that people are still moving in that type of way, that they're still mm-hmm. navigating their entire lives in the space of hate. Like that surprises me when I think mm-hmm. about when I study history as a historian and when I'm like, like so into the archives and looking at the deep past and seeing like, wow, you know, this is literally the same things that was happening. Like I was just kept repeating, you know, I was reading the Black Panthers demands that they put up like their tenants. And I was like, mm-hmm. wow. 
this is literally everything that we stand now. You know, it's just like, I, like I'm, yeah. I'm so surprised at how pervasive it has been politically and also more deeply than that spiritually. I'm really surprised that spiritually there hasn't been some more evolution around those who are thinking that way, kind of dying out and people being like, actually, it really don't matter like what someone's skin color is, that people are still moving. Even with the Trump administration, that really surprised me that that many people could follow. Like he has millions and millions of people voting for him and that really like what he's saying. Like, wow, like people still think this way because it just seems so, Mm -hmm. like I'm looking at centuries and centuries of people thinking this. It's like, you're still there, yet you haven't seen it. So that surprises me every day. Mm. Seriously, I do understand it to be um, demonic. I do see, you know, I really Mm. do gain white supremacy Mm. and all those things as a demonic force. And so I talk, think about Martin Luther King Jr. Him thinking of calling it a spiritual deficiency. And a lot of his Mm. speeches, a lot of his writings, he would be preaching about um, the whites in the South, the white liberals, he would be calling them out specifically saying that there's a spiritual deficiency in you that allows you to look at a person like mm-hmm. this that allows you to lynch. And so this idea of this spiritual deficiency, this demonic um, nature that allows people to be so deeply, deeply into violence in a way against another human being, like I'm shocked by that, literally. <laughs> the spiritual disease hasn't been called out. You yes. know, we we haven't called it what it is. We haven't so, called like, it what it is. If we had a physical disease that was ravaging the planet, you'd better believe we'd be on it. But oh, because yeah. it's a spiritual disease, it can slide and slither through all kinds of cracks that have never yes. been addressed. You know, yeah. lack of accountability from the beginning. I so appreciate you sharing, you know, that thing that's been that hasn't happened yet. But I feel like when when we address it or give language to it, give language, you know, that's it. we give some a breath of fresh air, some oxygen to maybe start to work on that spiritual disease. That's so true. And I, I call it out every time when I, when I preach, when I lecture, but this is what it is and it needs to be called out for such. You know, even when I see some of the videos and I look into the eyes of the people yes. who are doing that, I'm just like, their, their eyes aren't right. You know, I want someone to do a study around like looking at the videos and somatically looking at what's mm-hmm. happening in their bodies and what's going yes. on in their eyes. Yes. It is a disease. Like it is a mm-hmm. demonic possession. Something mm-hmm. is happening that is not it's ravaged and imploded you. It's like we are rave, ravaging against principalities. You know, there is some spiritual things that are happening and are allowing this to continue and allowing mm. it to consume people's hearts and their bodies and minds. They even look unwell. Yeah. Well, I guess we've got to have a whole lot more people napping so their ancestors can get through and start <laughs> creating that awakening. Yeah. That's what hasn't happened. When you see people who look like they're not present, they're not present. They aren't. Imagine the amazement if they knew their ancestors, part of reality now, the greater reality, how much shame they're bringing to their ancestry yeah. by carrying out the disease and spreading it. Yes, and not mm. even conne- not even connecting with their ancestors. There's a beautiful mm. book by Wendell Berry called The Hidden Wound that I really love. That He's mm. a um, white man from Kentucky, poet and essayist, and he write, writes this book about this hidden wound that white people carry around, this wound of um, racial terror that... There is no space. No one has talked to him about it. Like he was saying, his grandmother, his great-grandmother, he will be asking him, like, did y'all, what was y'all doing during Jim Crow? What was y'all up to? You know, like, what was y'all, what was y'all doing in Kentucky mm. at the time? And they're like, we're not talking about that. Don't say nothing. He was finding, like, 
KKK robes and attics and reading documents. Wow. And his family was deeply in that and how it's this hidden wound because there's no, his theory is that there's no one in each people's families which, who are actually bringing it up and using some type of idea to process all of this and like making shape of like there's this deep shame around it. So who can they go to? Like their grandmother's like, we're not talking about that. I refuse to talk about what happened. That was the past, like hiding things. And when I was in seminary, we were, we were studying lynchings in one of my classes and the teacher was showing lynching videos and pictures of some of the lynchings that were happening. And I was like maybe one of three black people in the whole class and how the teacher was just like, why don't, why are y'all so silent? Why aren't y'all saying anything? Like you're in school. We need to talk about this. This is part of what we're doing as religious leaders. And this one girl was like, I, I um, feel sick. She was like, I have to run to the bathroom. And so she, she was vomiting in the washroom and she came back and she said one of the photos of the lynchings that was happening, like one of the women in the crowd smiling looked like it could have been her great grandmother. She was like, that look, where was that taken? Is that Kentucky? Like, I know my grandma's from Kentucky. She like, she was visibly shaken up to the fact that she's like, my family members were probably a part of that. Mm-hmm. But no one in her family ever talked to her about. It was just like this idea in her head that, of course, she's looking at, they were raised in the South. They have homes in the South. They were white. They were living in Mississippi. They were li- what were they doing during these times? And so she was like, when I think about that, I'm so paralyzed by sickness that I don't know how to speak. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. Like, I'm, I'm disgusted. And so this hidden wound mm. that, that Wendell Berry talks about as a white man writer really is a beautiful book that I always recommend to people is to be like, there has been no type of ancestral or spiritual accountability or family processing around that time. Unlike Black people like me, when that's all we talk about, you know? Like, my grandma's always talking about how they had to get through what they were doing, like what was happening in the South during these times, talking about their time as sharecroppers. Like, we're always processing that racial trauma, but there's no space. They haven't had any type of support in their families to really speak on that. Like, it's an American wound. It's an American saying that people aren't speaking about. And so I think about that a lot. Well, what we can do is go into our own core, into the depth, get the truth out where there's a single pointed reality where we all come out in the same arena of truth so we can make amends Uh and we could tell the truth from now on about the past and where we're headed, you know? That's a beautiful thought. I really want people to like tap into the spiritual practice of rest, the spiritual dimension. It can really heal. It can do some healing on you that you can't do in this awake world. Maybe there can be some apologies or some amends in these dreams and you can kind of connect there with your ancestors and really do some deep uncovering, you know, that dark night of the soul, that shadow work, you know? Yes, yes. I think rest can support that, you know, because that's a... It's a lot. It's very intense. And so to be able to mm. make space for silence and daydream. And I always want to talk about resting, not just being naps. You know, resting is daydream. And it's anything that connects our mind and our bodies. It's slowed down. It's a pause. It's healthy boundaries. It's some things that bring us back and connect that us. Trisha, Ooh, you are Trisha. a word. I could just sit here and listen to you forever. Oh oh my God. You guys, we could have so many different parts to this podcast. (laughs) I just want to put this out there because this has been the biggest one for me is that 
Ever since I got married, sleeping next to somebody has Ooh. changed my sleep completely. <laughs> okay. And so I feel like I just want to put this request in to both of you Our because I would, podcast. yeah, I would love to have a whole podcast on what it's like to sleep next to somebody because yeah. I do feel like you pick up on each other's dreams, like the same yeah. way you were talking about the events that you do. Mm-hmm. And that's something that you don't think about before oh. you partner with somebody. Right. And you so film. it's physiological. There is a sinking up that happens. Absolutely. There is a whole <laughs> sinking up. So <laughs> yeah. anyway, next time for a part two, time. I would love to get into that <laughs> oh, sometime. Of but- course. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it so much. Oh, thank you so much for joining us. And that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find the Butterfly Forecast every Tuesday with a new episode available wherever you do your podcasting. Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher. Hope to see you then. We'll see you next time. That's all that matters to me. That's all that matters to me. That's all.